G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision Christian Radio. Yeah, I I think every person or almost everyone strives for success. Uh, The bottom line is how we define it. And and that's not just the 21st century, I think, um, since the beginning of humankind. Um, So almost everyone strives for it, and yet it's elusive. Uh, The more you get, it's almost like the more there is. And it's addictive. And sometimes it leaves us feeling like failures. Uh, for example, the, the, when I graduated as a medical doctor, the person who was ducks of our year, um, three, four years later, I heard he was on a great program to be trained as a surgeon. He was, you know, the best in our year. He was one of the best of the best. He was on track to be among the elite surgeon. Next thing I heard, he committed suicide. It's like he got to the top of the ladder of success. He looked around and thought, is this all there is? And he committed suicide. So sometimes we, we're naive in, in like we're so obsessed with climbing the ladder of success and we're not even looking what wall is it leaning against. And if you do get to the top and attain this, at what price? And the reason is one of my passion is because I see too many families, too many children neglected while their parents are striving for success. Too many Couples, marriages, breaks down because of the mortgage stress. But why did they take such a big mortgage? Who put a gun to their heads to take such a big loan that they got to work 50, 60 hours a week, be exhausted so they give leftover time to each other and to their children? And many of these people are Christians. They go to churches. So there's something that's not quite happening quite right. But Omar, for someone who is a gifted entrepreneur, uh, very skilled in business, making money is just comes easy to them, or that person who is particularly intelligent and uh, pursues an academic career and uh, and and uh, studies to get their PhD. I mean, these are the sorts of things that should happen. So is success more to do with an attitude rather than the pursuits of our life? Because obviously some people, and, uh, you know, of course the kingdom of God needs for people to make a lot of money and to uh, to assume those highest levels of academic achievement. Uh, or to achievement in all sorts of different areas. Is this an attitude we're talking about here? Yes, I think I believe in holistically. So it's an attitude. Um, it, it's our thinking. It's it's our spirit, our relationship with God. Um, and the, the reason I use the term redefining success is because the world defines success according to what you possess. The house we live in, the cars we drive, the gadgets, and then if you're married or not, if you have a beautiful spouse or a handsome, um, you know, and then if you have children, and then if your children goes to the best schools, and if your children did well, and it's one possession after another. That's not how Jesus defines success. So yeah, at the outset, I'm glad you, you're clarifying. I, I'm not suggesting we go the other extreme either, that we don't have ambition, we don't have, you, you know, failure is not an option either. And and the Apostle Paul, and of course Jesus is my ultimate role model, second to Jesus would be the Apostle Paul. Paul was driven. 
He was ambitious. He wanted to be the best of the best. So Paul didn't retire early. He didn't take life easy. What was he on about, though? Why did he do all that? So how did Jesus, how did Paul define success? I think are the keys. But yes, I'm glad you're clarifying that I'm not supporting apathy, um, just this, you know, still be right, mate, attitude. Um, at the same time, is it about me? I think that's the bottom line. Who is it really about? Who defines success for me? And tragically, a lot of people, I mean, in a sense, even Christians, they've handed over the power to define success to other people and rather than to Jesus. So it's almost like they're holding up a mirror. Uh, often it's our parents or our children. Uh, a lot of marketing are pitching at children. You've got car advertisements pitching at nine-year-olds because these nine-year-olds will be then harassing their dads and their moms to buy this fancy four-wheel drive. So a lot of parents say that it gives the power to children to define them as a success. That's happened in my life. I've, I've struggled with both dad and son. So at the age of 23, I graduated as a medical doctor. I had a beautiful girlfriend. You would think that's the pinnacle of success for a 23-year-old. My dad thought um, my dad was an aeronautical engineer, and he thought a medical doctor was on par. So in his eyes, I was a success. Some years later, when I believe God was convicting me to leave full-time medical career in Australia, to go to Africa to study theology, to prepare to be a missionary, Guess where I was in my dad's estimation? <laughs> Way down low. I plummeted quickly, and uh, I don't know how low, uh, but uh, we would have arguments. I remember we said painful words to each other when he would say something like, Son, you're leaving a prestigious, financially secure of medicine in Australia to become what? A beggar. Because he knew I was interested in SIM. SIM missionaries, we raise prayer and financial support with our friends, our churches, our family. So he said, you're going to go around churches begging. So I was a failure in my father's eyes. Fast forward 20-some years later when I had a son, um, and Stephen, uh, between the age of 4 and 12, he really struggled with the house we live in because my wife and I, we spent the bulk of our early working career as workers overseas or studying Bible, and so we didn't have much money. So when we came to buy a house, admittedly in Sydney, so ridiculous real estate prices, we only looked at five houses. I have friends who looked at 30, 40 houses, and I thought, well, there were only five we could afford, the bottom end of the market. Uh, in fact, when we moved in, a friend uh, looking around said, oh, this is a nice house for a first house. I thought, is that a compliment or a bit <laughs> yes. of a dig? Yeah. Well, it was a compliment back then, but if I'm still in the same house 24 years later, it starts to become an insult. Well, guess where I live? In the same house. In the same house. <laughs> and guess how much mortgage stress I have? Not as much as all of those who have the bigger houses. That's right. <laughs> so when we talk about this sort of thing, Omar, uh, there'll be those who might be thinking, is this what I need to look forward to if I make a decision to 
serve in the kingdom in a full-time capacity, perhaps as a mission worker? Uh, because some people might be thinking, well, um, you know, that's not what I've been raised to do. Uh, to actually become a mission worker, do I have to forego all of these comforts that I've worked so hard for? Uh, what are your thoughts on on whether there are those who are called to be missionaries and those who are called to support the missionaries? Well, to be honest, my my less popular view is that I don't make a distinction between those who've been called to be a missionary, those who've been called to so-called full-time ministry like a pastor, uh, a minister. My conviction is that every single child of God is an ambassador of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we are to live for Jesus first and foremost. So I don't have this dichotomy, you know, so-called full-time ministry. When I was working as a GP all up, I, I worked in medicine nearly 10 years I believe I was just as much of a witness doing medical work, examining dirty, smelly feet, as when I'm now providing leadership for a mission organization. And to be honest, that is one of the things that concerns me the most. Even pastors and ministers seem to dichotomize between holy or sort of sacred calling and secular. No, first and foremost, we're children of God. We're ambassadors of the Lord of Lords and we're witnesses. Whether I'm an accountant, teacher, surgeon, it's all secondary. So I think all of us in Australia who are followers of Jesus, we can be downwardly mobile. We can live below our means so we can invest more in that which will last for eternity. People. And I'm unapologetic. Australia, we're we're in the top 1%. Like, people think we're poor in Australia. I mean, my son thought we were poor because all his friends lived in bigger and better houses, except for one. And so between the age of 8 and 12, Stephen and I had conversations that went something like this when he said, Dad, I wish you could stay, you had stayed working as a medical doctor in Australia because then you could have earned lots of money. We could have a bigger house, a better house with a swimming pool. And he had a long list of things I could buy him. I tried to explain, Stephen, for your mum and I, life is not about the house we live in or the cars we drive. It's about following Jesus and doing what he wants us to do. Now, then his comeback to me was his dad. You can just say you follow Jesus and do whatever you want. People at church do that. You see, the confusion for Stephen was because many of his friends who lived in huge houses on the waterfront went to church on Sundays. And so sometimes I think, what difference does it mean that we're followers of Jesus if we're about the same thing as the world? about the possessions. And this is where Jesus' definition of success must be central to our lives. But sadly, a lot of people who say they follow Jesus, they don't even know what Jesus, how Jesus defines success. A biblical perspective of life, culture and current events. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision. Yeah, so I believe in the Bible that it defines success different to the way the world defines success according to what you possess. Jesus, I think one of the clearer passages in Luke chapter 12, when there was someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So there was a common problem. Um, what happens when somebody dies? But Jesus didn't answer the young man, the person's question. He just went straight to the heart. And he said, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, and this is what we need to really uh, pay careful attention. Jesus said, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A person's life does not consist 
in the abundance of his or her possessions. Another translation says, Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because a person's life is not to be defined by their possessions. Then Jesus went on to explain this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I've no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's the old Australian dream. Retire early, and all you have to think about is what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, and be happy. But when this rich person felt he was the most secure, his retirement's all set, the truth is that he was the most vulnerable. Because God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Now this is the um, warning Jesus went on to say. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. So a clear definition of success is to be rich towards God. Then Jesus went on to explain. um, If you read on the rest of Luke chapter 12, he says, don't worry about what you'll eat or drink um, because you're God's children. Uh, He says, so basically seek first the kingdom of God um, and then to be generous to the poor. So I believe to be rich towards God, Jesus' definition of success in essence is to be dependent on God as his children. That is about who we are more than what we do. Then to be kingdom-focused rather than self-absorbed and to be generous to the poor. Uh, Omar, before we move on, let me just come back to a caller that we had uh, called in and uh, Chiquita before the news. And she was sharing some things about, you know, 10 years uh, serving. I think she mentioned Leonora in WA. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was serving and obviously sacrificially in that. A couple of things that she mentioned, uh, which I'd like to get your insights on. One of those was that she served for 10 years and there was a season of that sacrificial serving. And then she went back and uh, she was in some ways relieved from the heaviness of that sacrifice. What were your thoughts about the way that there are seasons for really sacrificial service and there's perhaps other seasons where you don't lose the attitude, uh, but it's not quite so hard? Yeah, I th- I, what I love about what Chiquita was about listening to God and, and, and discerning what he wants, wants her to do or wanted her to do. Uh, because there are different seasons. What really come to mind are mothers of young children. Um, some, some mothers, they were, they've been well, well on track to even to climb the corporate ladder of success. Then as a couple, they decide that their children deserve the best. They decided to stay at home. Well, most of the time, most of those mums feel like failures. And that's because of the way the world defines success. And, and so these young mums have to redefine success that is not about the productivity. It's not that they can have an impressive list of what they accomplish on that day other than loving their child. Um, and, and so they're all crucial and key illnesses. We go through periods. And this is where I think in God's eyes, anyone can be a success. And to be honest, one of the person that challenged me the most about success was actually the person who helped us when we lived in Nairobi. In, in Nairobi, a lot of stuff have to be done, done by hand. We didn't have a washing machine because the water is too erratic. 
you know, you need water to do washing machines. So yep. we had to have uh, somebody come. And one day, I remember I was preparing a sermon. Um, by that time, Nairobi Chapel had grown to probably about 1,500 people. I was preaching three or four times on the weekend. But that particular morning, I had some anger. Uh, I think I was in a conflict. So there I was trying to prepare a sermon, and my heart was filled more with anger. I heard our maid singing songs of praise to Jesus while she was washing our dirty clothes. And I had one of those rare, um, precious moments like the Lord Jesus tapped me on my shoulder and asked me, Omar, who is a success in my eyes right now? You know, me, the pastor, about to preach to 1,500 people a few days later, our maid worshipping Jesus while washing our dirty clothes. The people at the top of Jesus' lists of success, if you want to call it that, may be maids and servants, Mother Teresa, but even people who are unknown. You know, Mother Teresa is very well known, but we really need to redefine success that it's according to being rich towards God, being dependent on God as his children, being kingdom-centered, and being generous to the poor. There was another thing that Chiquita shared too, because when she was serving the Lord in that sacrificial way for that 10 years, uh, she found herself in a country church setting and not so much in the city church. Now, there's an interesting uh, contrast here because sometimes people might say, well, if I'm going to be serving in the country, in a small country town, and uh, there are people that need to uh, you know, have uh, pastoral uh, oversight and uh, discipleship, things have to happen in country towns like they do in the city. But in the country town, there's, it's not likely that I'm going to get rich doing that. But in the city, there is potential that I might be uh, paid well for what I might do if there's a bigger, larger, shinier congregation. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about where you're serving? Yeah, I think there are two extremes to avoid. Um, so I just spent yesterday at Toowoomba. We had a meeting um, at a church in Toowoomba for 20 people. So I, I'll be honest, I'm crossing, driving several hours there for 20 people. And I need to keep reminding myself it's not about the numbers. Having said that, though, there, there was an issue for me, a burning issue, was about stewardship. If I can share the same message with 200 people, you know, why just 20? So the two extremes for me to avoid is I think in the regional or uh, country settings, the small churches sometimes – they fall to the extreme of, of this, we're the faithful remnant. We're not going to do anything different. Don't ever talk about joining with other churches um, because we want to keep our name and our denomination. So what's success? The success for them is keeping their history. It's all the past. And, and so sometimes to small churches and small organizations, I'm pleading, can we not let go of our history, our, our wonderful name, our denomination, so that we could be more effective. And sometimes it could mean joining. Like I would have loved to have uh, an audience of a 100 because it's it's about the message. The more we can get the message out there. The other extreme to avoid is, yeah, if, if I'm in the big city church, then I must be doing well. The bottom line for me is that if we remove what we do, will it affect the way how I feel about myself? Because then if I feel better driving a BMW than driving, I won't mention another brand, um, what does that tell you about me? My security and my identity then is on all these outward frills rather than on being a child of God. So when I was um, getting this position, for example, I was in an awkward con- uh, conversation back in Nairobi 
when um, the news got out that I was um, going to accept this role, um, coming back to Australia to serve as a national director, another pastor from Narubi Chapel and I having a conversation. This young man joined me enthusiastically congratulating me for my promotion. I thought, well, how does my associate pastor feel, you know, that I'm getting promoted? And I joked with him. I said, no, no, I don't consider this a promotion. I've been promoted to the highest position in life way back before this. And the young man looked confused. And he said, oh, you mean when you were working as a medical doctor? I said, no, before then, when I became a child of God, when I received Jesus Christ as Lord, when I submitted to his lordship and I was, I, I was adopted to be his child, I became ambassador of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. There's no higher position than being a child of God. A biblical perspective of life, culture and current events. The 2020 Summer Series on Vision. Yeah, I think for, so for the challenge for Stephen, um, you know, all his friends except for one lived in bigger, better houses. But again, if I'm going to be affected with how I think about myself by the house I live in, what does that say about me? And so what I try to help Stephen is that our identity is not about the house we live in. Now, it was hard. I freely admit it was hard to think that my son thought of me as a failure compared to the fathers of his friends. That's what I had to live with. So both, and then one day Stephen has these revelations. One day he came when I was doing something in the kitchen and says, Dad, I just realized both your dad and I wanted you to stay as a medical doctor in Australia. I was thinking, yes, thank you, son. Both of you thought of me as a failure. Thank you for reminding me of that. That's the reality. But my concern is that most people do not remember the kind of housing they were in when they were small children. Most young marrieds back in my days, so I'm in my mid-50s, We didn't buy a house when we first got married. We bought a unit or a granny flat. We used secondhand furniture. So most people don't remember that. So sadly, most people can only remember the house when they were teenagers. And they forget that their parents had worked something like 15, 20 years, had saved up all that money. But that becomes their starting point. So now you have young couples getting married with the idea that the first needs to be either a new two, three-bedroom unit, and, and they, they start at that level. That's a curse because if you start at that high level, where, where have you got to move to? The irony of it is that if you type in globalrichlist.com, the median income for the average Australia, apparently median income is 55000 You type in that into globalrichlist.com, it will show that we are part of the 1% most wealthy people on earth. How can we be discontented about the house, the unit, the flat, whatever our housing is, when we're part of the 1% most wealthy people on earth? This brings us, doesn't it, back to how we define success when we are exposed to what the Bible teaches, what Jesus himself modeled for us in success. Let's come back to some more biblical foundation here and perhaps uh, Jesus' words about his uh, redefinition or the way that he, in fact, you know, if we looked at Philippians chapter 2, humbled himself and left behind the riches of heaven in that sense of humbling himself and becoming born as a baby. And there is a certain sense in his modeling that starts right from that time of the incarnation. Yeah. And Jesus did many things. He didn't just say words to demonstrate what success is. So, for example, 
in the culture in those days, children are considered to be, you know, they should just be quiet, be silent. When he talks about success, who did he show? A child. And he even says that unless you are willing to become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So in other words, unless you're willing to be dependent upon God as your father, rather than being independent of God. So the rich fool was a fool, not because he was successful, not because he was a great farmer or effective farmer. He was a fool because he was independent of God. So when God blessed him with abundant harvest, instead of thanking God and considering how he could bless others, all he thought was about himself. Now, to be fair, Australian marketing is one of the most effective in the world. It constantly bombards us with the messages that life is about me. And so we're in this whirlpool of self-absorption. Like, if, if the listeners could think about, when was the last time they came across anything on social media, on advertising, marketing, that reminded us that life is not about me, it's about God, and what will last for eternity is not about the house I live in, the car I drive. It's about the relationships, the people, and God's kingdom. So being caught up in this whirlpool, if we aren't deliberate in, in, for me, moving downward, uh, living below my means, interacting with the poor. So I try to remember my friends who are in Kenya. I remember the kind of house they live in. And I love traveling to regional Australia. To be fair, I think people in regional and in the country, they're far more content than city folks. Um, I stayed in a house I felt, yeah, to be honest, I felt like I stepped back in time to the 70s. You know, the kitchen cupboards was that color of that was popular in the 70s, the vinyl top tables. But the people who hosted me, they were far more content than most people I meet in my area, the Sutherland Shire of Sydney. So when we talk about what you sacrifice, sometimes it's probably a mistake when we're talking about success to only talk about what you shouldn't have because it's challenging to say uh, if you're driving a nice car or you live in a bigger house uh, that somehow or other you're doing something wrong. Let's talk about some more of this attitude of the heart uh, led to this idea of what it looks like and feels like to be a success when you've got the attitude right. And uh, coming to those Galatians, fruit of the Spirit, the idea of having a life that is filled with love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. This is the sort of attitude of the heart that comes when you get things aligned with God. And so if you're in his definition of success, these are the sorts of things that you're saying, those country people... They were expressing something of the fruit of the Spirit. They were actually living in a contentment that others who are grappling with all of this, uh, the uh, the trimmings of their so-called success, are grappling with. Yeah, I think we could feel the pulse of our soul. Like a lot of people, if they're honest, they're very restless. They're always thinking about the next purchase, their, their next renovation, their next house, their next holiday, their next dot, dot, dot. Um, and that's one of the fruit of the Spirit is patience, um, joy, um, contentment is part of that. Uh, Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. And, and so we need to be honest with ourselves. If I'm not content, uh, what does it say about me? What does it say about my relationship with God? Am I being rich towards God? Because I think our maid, her name was Zanabu, was more content than many Christians I know in Australia 
who have far more, abundantly more than she does. So it is perspective, it is the heart, but it does need to work out. And I do want to be upfront and honest. I mean, Jesus talked about money more than he talked about eternal life uh, because Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I'm not suggesting that somebody cannot be following Jesus if they live in a mansion. What I'm asking, if you live in a mansion, and most of us do compared to the rest of the world, ask where is our treasure? Are we looking at making heaven on earth? Or are our, is our eyes fixed on Jesus and we just happen to need to live somewhere? And so let's make the house functional. I don't believe in uh, living in a house that's running down and, and or health hazards or anything like that. But we're not to live. It's not to be heaven on earth. We, we're pilgrims. We, we're passing through and all these will be burnt up and will disappear. And anyway, we'll, we'll probably die before all that happens. So what will last for eternity? And how can we be rich towards God? Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand. Or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.